Good, e good evening, everyone. It's great to be with you this evening and those who are listening in from live stream. And uh, it's just a joy to, uh, again tonight, I have Paul Westcott, who's going to share with us uh, more about how we can be biblical voters, how we can represent God in the voting booth. And I think that's what God would want of us. And uh, so tonight we're going to continue from our last week, and uh, we'll wrap it up this evening, I think. Right, Paul? Okay. Uh, I wanted to share with you before we, before we turn it over to Paul that this weekend we have, of course, our service, our weekend service, and then at 4 in the afternoon, is it 4 or 4.30? 4, yes. Uh, we're going to have our beach baptism, which is over at J.C. Park, north of the little shack there, the little you know bathrooms and restaurant area. We'll be there along the, along the boardwalk and have our little devotional time and, and time of worship, a couple songs, and then we'll go down to the beach and we'll have a baptism service. So I hope each of you will be there 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. Looking forward to that. Well, let's begin with prayer tonight. Lord, I want to thank you for uh, just sending to us uh, this wonderful weather today. Uh, not, not as humid, not quite as hot, and with a little breeze. We're thankful for those little things. They matter. And tonight, Lord, as we come in, we're thankful for our speaker, for Paul Westcott, for Kim. Thank you for their commitment to seeking out the truth and teaching the truth of God. And tonight, Paul, giving us understanding in, in these matters of our government, matters of voting. And I pray that tonight, uh, those who are listening in will enjoy and learn and grow, just like those of us who are sitting here this evening. And we give you praise and honor and glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Greg. Okay. Um, to put an edge again on, on the approach, biblical foundation, but also because we are all disciples and we have been given the Great Commission and we are to be salt and light, it's important, I think, that we be effective communicators and have an understanding of things. So uh, just to kind of refresh you on my approach, Bible and civics and law and uh, just in order to, to have it all merged together to give you the tools so that when you find yourselves in conversations, you're as prepared as you possibly can be. I'm an Eagle Scout, I like to be prepared and I maybe help you guys in the same way. Um, real quick, uh, I'm gonna, uh, I've been asked, let's hold off on questions until the end um, and remind me if we're still live over uh, uh, the internet to re repeat the question in case I forget because I didn't do that last time and, and those of you that, that uh, didn't get to hear the questions, I apologize for that. Real quick uh, recap. Um, Last week we talked about why we should vote, and um, I, I'm going to try and do these just kind of quick refreshers. Um, shared with you uh, Jesus being challenged on paying taxes, and the fact that uh, Jesus' response was to hold up a denarius and, and ask the, the crowd whose image is on that, and it was Caesar's, and he, his advice and, and, uh, was that, that we should render under Caesar, unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's. My interpretation of that goes beyond just paying taxes and, and, and Jesus being a good lawyer in terms of responding to somebody who was trying to trick him. Um, 
the translation sometimes, I think, for me can, and, and, and for us should be, render unto the civil authority that which is the civil authorities. Okay? That includes our vote, our obligation to vote. Um, and, and so uh, for Christians, I don't think it's optional. Even when we find we are voting for the lesser of two evils, we got to vote. And, 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 and quite frankly, until Jesus is on the Bible, or excuse me, on the ballot, we're always, always voting for the lesser of two evils. Um, so just keep that in mind. Um, our vote is a gift from God. And just remember and reflect on the parable of the talents. If you don't use it, what happens? You lose it. We, we put ourselves in jeopardy in not voting and not participating. Um, and, uh, and we see that manifest in a lot of different ways through uh, unconstitutional executive orders that may come down, uh, appointments to the Supreme Court. It really, right now we are seeing the importance of the Christian vote and how it can change our land and what we're seeing on the news with the appointment uh, process that we're seeing. We also talked a little bit about anger. Um, that uh, just reminding that Jesus, you know, excuse me, we've been told, taught that we are to, uh, we can be angry, but to sin not. And just the caution uh, of last week was that frequently in, in Scripture we see sin in very close proximity to anger. And we should be careful. Um, and Jesus, Jesus' use of anger... Um, that we see in the stories that he used, the parables, uh, the great banquet um, with the, 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 the wealthy person who invited his friends to uh, a banquet. They gave all, all sorts of excuses that didn't show up. He was angered by that. And rather than keeping his doors closed, what did he do? He showed generosity. He shared, sent his servants out into the community to get the poor to come and enjoy what his friends did not enjoy. We see the story of Jesus um, being confronted uh, because he's on the, it's on the Sabbath and he's going to possibly heal a man with a shriveled hand. And he understands and can, can perceive the hearts of the religious leaders that were there and what they were intending to do about him uh, in terms of judgment because of the opportunity that was going to be presented for him to do a healing. Um, Jesus is, we are told that Jesus was angry. How did he handle his anger? He healed the man with the shriveled hand. He performed a miracle. I think it's a powerful story for us in terms of dealing with anger. Because anger is a noun, excuse me, anger is a noun, not a verb. Okay, so it isn't sin, it's an emotion. It can lead to sin, and we just need to be mindful of that because of the opportunities to be angry in our political discourse right now. And what I, I find interesting is, um, and this is a word of caution, the Bible doesn't say whether or not Jesus was angry um, when he cleansed the temples, uh, cleansed the temple on two occasions, both occasions, doesn't say that. And I find that interesting that elsewhere we know where Jesus is angry, we know when he uses anger in a, as a, as a uh, means of, of uh, instruction when he's telling his parables, but we don't hear that Jesus was angry when he cleansed the temple. I think that's noteworthy. I think he was intentional in cleansing it. And, and, and the reason that's important for us to keep in mind is because I've used that. You know, that's a righteous anger. 
let's go turn over some tables. Well, I'm not Jesus, so maybe I shouldn't. So the, the, that's where we were um, last week, and we started with, started getting into the sanctity of life and uh, went over the Bible verses concerning that. We know that God is the creator of life. He, in the Old Testament, told us that um, uh, you shall not murder. Murder, as we know, is a wrongful killing. Um, things that God hates, this is Proverbs 6.16, uh, among which is the shedding of innocent blood. And the cities of refuge are a good example or demonstration of how God views the taking of innocent blood. What does he tell us? So you shall not shed innocent blood in the midst of your land, is why he gave them the cities of refuge. Powerful words for us today. So you shall not shed innocent blood in your land, and, and, uh, uh, which I think we are doing. Uh, with the abortion, uh, with the abortion issues. In our land, we are allowing that to take place. Um, okay, so um, as I mentioned, I'm going to be covering Scripture and then also talking about how to interpret and understand the Constitution um, and, uh, and, and some other things concerning, you know, how to deal with these touchy issues when, you're, when, uh, when we're, we're having these conversations. What does our Constitution say again? Um, I'm starting at the, this slide that's behind me, the Fifth Amendment. Nor shall any person be deprived of liberty or property, life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And obviously, abortion is the deprivation of a life without due process. You don't go to the court and make that decision. Judge doesn't rule that baby should be dead. There's no due process. So Roe v. Wade. Um, is the case that we hear so much about. As you recall, um, last week, you're going to hear the concept of stare decisis, and that is the Supreme Court should not ever reverse itself. You're probably going to hear, you know, tones of, um, of that, suggestions of that, with regard to the discussions of the Supreme Court appointment right now, that Roe v. Wade is untouchable, unassailable. Um, Supreme Court has made bad decisions in the past that have been corrected. And I mentioned Dred Scott, which was um, uh, ruled, the Supreme Court ruled that even if you were a freed slave, black people are not citizens of the United States. They could have been born here at the time. This was 1857. If, if that was the holding of the Supreme Court, deserved to be reversed. Plessy versus Ferguson, racial segregation laws were held to be constitutional. Separation, excuse me, separate but equal was okay. Clearly not, but the Supreme Court said that in 1896. Again, 1896 is after the post-war amendments to the Constitution that pertain to um, uh, 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 dealing with uh, uh, um, the, the empowerment, if you will, um, of, of the freed slaves. So uh, Roe v. Wade started out with a discussion of a right to privacy and a consideration of uh, what that meant in terms of the woman's right to have the abortion. Uh, started out also with a discussion of whether or not that unborn baby was a person. 
and the Supreme Court found that uh, the unborn baby is not a person. Um, I think it's important that, that we all have it ingrained in our mind how the Supreme Court should be looking at interpretation of our Constitution and the laws, okay? And how, because we have a conversation frequently, people want to think in terms of our culture. What is our culture doing right now? Let's view the Constitution as if it's limited to what's going on in our culture when really we need to be reaching back into what our founding fathers intended. And our founding fathers intended to express themselves in the Fifth Amendment, plain and simple. Um, the fifth, the Constitution, excuse me, our founding fathers also um, gave us the ability to amend the Constitution, okay? If we have the ability to amend the Constitution through a structured process, founding fathers understood that our culture might change, our needs might change, and that the Constitution might, not, might need to be amended to fit the circumstances. They didn't say, when our culture changes, we want to empower the Supreme Court to reinterpret the Constitution. That's not in there. So it's logical to read the Constitution as if our founding fathers intended it to be a constraining document and uh, to be changed by way of uh, the amendment process that's set forth therein, okay? So anyhow, back to Roe v. Wade. Constitution does not explicitly mention any right to privacy. So on the one hand, there's a right to privacy that allows the woman to abort the baby. However, they admit that the Constitution does not explicitly maintain or mention any right to privacy. What does that tell you? What have they done? They've legislated from the bench. They created a right that doesn't exist. Um, and the problem is, they also, and, and you, read the, you read Roe v. Wade and you see a court that is struggling with a moral issue that they know the answer for, in large part because the mental gymnastics they go through to get where they get is illogical. So on the one hand, if the baby's not a person, does the baby get protected on the Constitution? No. That should have been the end of the story. And that's why our Supreme Court appointments are so important, because I could envision a Supreme Court that could look at, as much as they tell those that are pro-life, Roe v. Wade is ironclad and unassailable, okay? I could see a Supreme Court with a composition that could come back to Roe v. Wade and say, wait a minute, Roe v. Wade isn't right. Roe v. Wade made the ruling that the baby is not a person. If the baby is not a person, then there's no constitutional protection, okay? So anybody can have an abortion at any time before the birth, and no states can do anything about it. That's a logical extreme of a determination that that baby is not a person. Okay? Um, however, you look at the opinion, you see how they're struggling with it, and they do this, the slide that's in front of us. It is reasonable and appropriate for a state to decide that at some point uh, in time, another interest, that of the health of the mother or that of the, or that of 
potential human life, okay? So what they've done is they've elevated a non-person potential human life to a person for purposes of constitutional protection. See the illogical disconnect? Yep. Okay. Um, so Roe v. Wade is a fork in the road. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. This is an unsettled question yes. that we hopefully will see settled in correct fashion during our lifetime. Um, and we ended up with the trimester system as a function. And they actually, this is their ruling. This is where they're playing scientist. So uh, first trimester, the mom has complete authority to make the decision. Second trimester, you don't, the state may get involved. The third trimester, the state, and that's usually where we see the activity in terms of state involvement is that third trimester. However, as we mentioned last week, the third trimester begins at the 28th week. Um, medical science has progressed such that babies can start survive, can survive much earlier. Okay, um, six to six weeks earlier. Okay, so what we've seen in some states is the ability to push that out. Okay, um, uh, so that uh, the state can get involved in that decision, if you will, uh, earlier in order to save the baby. Um, the, as I mentioned earlier, Roe v. Wade does not restrict abortion. Okay, it doesn't prohibit abortion, it just tells the states the territory they have in order to legislate about it, okay, where they can pass laws and where they cannot pass laws. Um, and that's why I said if a state decided that there is no limit on abortion, it's not contrary to Roe v. Wade. Sorry to say, but that's. Roe v. Wade is written um, in a way is directed to limit the states and the territory that the states do have where they can regulate if they choose to. Now, let me ask you, has, have you ever heard anybody say, well, I'm, I'm against abortion, but I think it's a state's rights issue? Okay. You see a lot of politicians moving into that territory because our culture is going to beat up on them in ways we're going to talk about. That's the wrong thinking. A state's right issue is not anti-abortion. A state's rights issue is just the opposite, because you're allowing the legislature to allow abortion. Okay, so it's, it, stay away from that. It's illogical and, and, um, and problematic thinking. Um, the talking points we hear from, from the pro-abortion side is re reproductive justice. I always, what exactly does that mean? Okay, have them explain it to you. What I have found in my legal profession is I, I find I can really help people when they're think, and with their thinking if I can persuade them to get their thinking out here. Okay, um, it's amazing when somebody does that, they pause, stop, realize eh, it seemed to work up here, but out here, not so much, okay? 
uh, a woman's right to choose. Okay, to choose. Uh, we hear that a lot. That's why the next slide you're going to hear is what about the baby? You've got to make it about the baby as much as you can. Make it about personhood. Um, uh, it's not a choice. And uh, and then there's some war on women. Um, again, have that be defined. You know, what do you mean war on women? You know, do, because I want to protect a baby, does that mean I hate women? Is that are you telling me I hate women? Um, make make them own the statement, not an adversarial way, but make them own it. Um, these are pressure points also, rape, incest, uh, the, the life of the mother. These are red herrings, okay? 92% um, of our abortions are purely elective. I don't want to have the baby for whatever reason. 7% are due to the health of the mother, and I think that number probably is shrinking. Um, I think that we're going to see a slide later. Um, only 0.5% are due to rape. Okay. Now, what happens when we are thinking in these terms that these are acceptable times to allow for abortion? We're mitigating or reducing the significance that it's still a person, that it's a baby we're talking about. We're ending the life of an innocent. Okay. So, um, and, and that's a slippery slope. The, the Scopes Monkey Trial, um, i trying to remember the attorney now, let himself get on the stand, um, conceded, yeah. hmm, Clarence Darrow, thank you, conceded that the old earth proposition, okay, well, that's fundamental to our scriptural understanding. Okay. If we can fudge on a week, we can fudge elsewhere, right? The scripture really doesn't mean what it says. Well, if it's a person and we allow for these exceptions, we put our toes in those waters. We have to be consistent. And our culture, our culture beats us down on that, wants us to feel like monsters because we want to have this poor woman who was raped have the baby. Well, that's where the church comes in. You know, in a lot of areas, the church has created vacuums that have been filled by our culture. Okay? That's where, affirmatively, those of us who are pro-abortion need to be doing the kinds of things that we see at the Crisis Pregnancy Center and the buggy bunch. Um, those ministries, you know, the, the church needs to fill those vacuums. So that when we are asked that question, well, the church is going to take care of, the church is going to come alongside. Uh, here it is. Uh, Dr. Guttenmacher of Planned Parenthood. Today it is possible for almost any patient to be brought through pregnancy alive unless there's a fatal in injury. And, and, and so when somebody starts talking to you, ask them, well, what do you mean? You know, when the life of the mother. What, tell, me, tell me what medical situations you're being an expert about that occur. Make them really think about it, because it's easy to toss it out there. And you can do it in an adversarial way. I frequently, the conversations that I've been presented with over the years, the temptation is to win the argument. I've learned over the years that it's really about planting the seeds. 
Sometimes the planting of the seeds is giving them something else to think about because you don't know where they're going to get weeks from now. Give it to God, let them, but be consistent, be true, and graceful. Plant the seeds. No one knows when life begins. That's actually a great question for us. It's nothing but a blob. You know, in other words, it's just, I've heard these sorts of things. Well, it's not a person, it's, it's, a, it's just a thing. Whenever it's possible, make it about the baby. Okay, and these are questions, you know, when does the baby deserve protection? Okay, ask them that. A good way I, I do it is, well, what if the mom decides she, her due date is June 20th and June 19th she decides she wants to have an abortion, is that okay? What if on the way to the hospital she's in labor and she freaks out and decides, I don't want to have this baby, I want to abort it, so take me, take me over here and not to the delivery room, is that okay? Would you accept that? They'll, hopefully they'll say no. Well, what about the week before that? What about the week before that? And with some, you're going to run into that spot where they say, that's when. Then you ask the next question, well, why then? Why then? What is different about that baby at that point that you feel so sure that it makes it okay? that you are absolutely sure. They may buffalo you, you know, give you, but you have got their wheels turning on that question. Especially if personalized it as well. You know, I was really struck when I saw the sonogram. Did you see the sonogram of your baby? Do you remember the, the, the fingers, the nose? Okay. Um, the conversation, if it's not a baby, what is it? It's not a liver, not a kidney, it's a baby. Has its own gene, uh, genetic makeup. Um, uh, let me see here. Where's the wrong button? Okay. Um, you know, has a heartbeat at what, 18 days? Um, at some occasions, they anesthetize the baby for, for the abortion. Well, what's that about? Have, has its own nervous system. It's a separate being. And Planned Parenthood acknowledges that because when the, as I mentioned last week, the organization that did the videos, I've forgotten their name now, um, uh, that um, Center for Medical Progress, I watched the videos, and um, they realized that it's a separate being and the struggle they have is they want to harvest organs. Okay, well, viability matters when you're harvesting the organs. Well, they can't change their procedure for the sole purpose of improving viability of the organs. Um, but they would like to, and they kind of, you, you watch some of these videos and they kind of complain about that. Um, but what they're doing is they're recognizing the separateness of this baby. It's a person. They're not taking stuff from the mom. And, and, and again, how you ask the question, you know, uh, the polling that gets done, the numbers are very different when, when you, you know, is abortion okay? That's not a great question. Is abortion, abortion okay after six months? After three months? When there's a heartbeat? Make it real. Um, again, 
there's some stories out there, a lot of stories. Tim Tebow is a good one. His mom had a medical complication, believe it or not, and, and her doctor told her to have an abortion. She lived fine. Tim obviously did pretty well, okay? Um, this um, baby, I mentioned Lavi, the next one. This, this is year, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, 2016. Ooh, time flies. They did a story of a baby named Lavi. Um, the mother gave birth. I think she had mental issues and left. So the poor father, or grandfather, I think it was, was left with this preemie baby that didn't know how to take care of. Actually kind of left it, but did, again, didn't know what to do. No, they, anyhow, some of the folks from MFI found the situation, started providing things for the baby. And you know, those of you can see, this is her. She lived, doing very well. And her name, Lavi, means life in Creole. Neat story. Okay. This is what gets me every time. Um, David. Kim and I have a nephew. Um, her mother was told early in the pregnancy he has spina bifida. Okay. Um, I have shared that when, back when she was still carrying, shared that with an attorney friend. Well, she's going to, obviously she's going to have an abortion. I said, no, she's not. Actually, she's going to Nashville, and Vanderbilt Hospital is going to do an in utero procedure. They're going to open her up, close up the lesion, close her up, put the amniotic fluid back in, because the lesion being open in the amniotic fluid over time it increases the damage. Went through that procedure, and he's Physically able, capable. He's 20, 22 years old. There's David. Awesome. Boxing. Um, so the message of that is fight the good fight. Have a good story. Be prepared. Be prepared. The next one, the Second Amendment. All right. Exodus. 22.2, we're taught that if a thief is caught while breaking in and is struck, and I want to talk just about our general ability to defend ourselves and talk about um, some of the interpretation and understanding of the Constitution. Again, I want you all to be, have the ability to argue Constitution. Uh, you're already going to be able to argue Bible, okay, in large part, I would imagine, but I want you to be able to argue Constitution too. If I can leave that with you, I'll be really happy, okay? Um, but that's why the castle doctrine is in the Bible, Exodus 22.2. Castle doctrine is your ability to defend yourself in your home, okay? Um, if, if a thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness, guiltiness on his account, okay? Self-defense is okay. When a strong man, um, this is Luke 11.21, uh, Jesus' teaching, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. Okay? Now, Jesus is using that as a metaphor in terms of being spiritually prepared. Okay? He could be much more selective about his imagery for spiritual preparedness. Okay? 
This one, I think, is one of those areas. Last week, I held up the quarter, and if you look at one side, there's a head. The other side is a tail, but it's still a quarter, okay? It's not a nickel. We don't make it a nickel, but we look at it and know that it's a quarter, okay? Well, I think there's another side to this quarter in terms of understanding our ability to defend ourselves, okay? So, um, I think that the Second Amendment is biblical. And it's going to be, it's biblical for another reason. Um, I'm going to relate to, the, the relates back to, I'm talking about money a lot, the denarius, I'm going to render under Caesar. In this, um, but, but remember, what did Peter do in the garden? He took out his hand and he chopped the ear off of the soldier because he didn't have any weapons. No, he used a sword. He had a sword. Even in the presence of Jesus, he had a weapon. Okay, let's look at the Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia, this is the language, being necessary to the... Now, this is Constitution Interpretation 101 from... from I mean, I, this is the, the really good way to lift up the, the process. Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Okay? That's the first half. Is there a right there? No. That is the why we have the Second Amendment. And that's important because what do we frequently hear in regard to the Second Amendment? That the right to keep and bear arms is tied to the states. Okay? Frequently you hear that in our culture as an argument as to why the Second Amendment doesn't mean I can own a rifle and keep it in my home. Okay? The right starts at where it says, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Okay? So this is, a good, again, good case study on understanding how original intent should work. Original intent is trying to discern from the language of the Constitution what our Founding Fathers really meant. Okay? First, what is militia? Okay? So that the states may have a militia. Let's understand what a militia is. The body of soldiers in a state engaged in actual service as distinguished from regular troops. Okay? Whose sole occupation is war or military service. Okay, so the militia are your homegrown soldiers, just like you would think of. Okay, so and this is from the 1828 dictionary, Webster's 1828 dictionary. I mentioned it to you. It's a great book to have around the house because if you want to understand what our founding fathers meant, you have to look at the way that the words were used and understood as close to the time that the Constitution was written as opposed to now since our culture has changed the words so much. Okay. So we know a militia is a group of soldiers that aren't regular soldiers, okay? They're not professional soldiers. People, okay? The people's right is what's phrased, is, is used. Well, the body of persons who compose a community, town, city, or nation. So the people. People. That's the, name, that's the way this word was used back then. So the people's right, because it's the word that's used, is a separate entity or thing from community. Excuse me, militia. Excuse me. 
And we see this elsewhere, Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, the President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states. So we see the Constitution further elaborating the distinction of what a militia is. And, and further accentuating the understanding of what a militia was is the following phrase, when called into the actual service of the United States, okay? They're not on the ready, they have to be called into service. So again, we've got the homegrown soldiers are the militia. Again, the Constitution refers to our government as the United States or the states. Therefore, if our founding fathers intended for the right to bear arms to be held by the states or the federal government, they would have used states or United States rather than people. You see, the, see where I'm going? In other words, you have the people's right to keep and bear arms so that we can have a militia. And the Supreme Court, fortunately, has, has gotten this one right. And, and, and I, you know, the, 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 the left would love to see these opinions change, but it's a personal right according to the Supreme Court right now. Um, Declaration of Independence further established that, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, rights that cannot be taken, care, taken away from us. Um, the last sentence, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That's in our Constitution. So the government is instituted for what? For us to serve it? For it to be our taskmaster? To be oppressed? No, it's to serve us. That's in the Declaration of Independence. Now, you'll hear, well, the Declaration of Independence is a meaningless document in terms of the Constitution. Well, the Constitution, excuse me, the Declaration of Independence tells us why we have the Constitution. Okay? And that's an important, you know, arguing point is why do we have the Constitution? Well, let's look at the Declaration of Independence, and that will explain it to us. Okay, historical context, I think, is a reasonable aspect of looking at original intent, particularly where the Second Amendment is concerned. So what was the personal experience of our founding fathers leading up to the ratification? Okay, well, we've all seen the various movies and films of the battles of Lexington and Concord with the Minutemen. Okay, well, where did those Minutemen get their rifles? From the corner of their house or above the mantle? Okay, they didn't go, some would go to an armory, some communities were an armory, and that was what these battles were really about. The British troops were going where? To try and seize stores of arms. Um, the experience of our founding fathers involved the British government, if they felt that the government needed to punish a community, British troops would seize the community stores of powder and arms, limiting their ability to defend themselves. That's what those battles were about. They would control the gunpowder. If you messed up, you know what, we're going to send a regiment of British soldiers and they're going to sit on your, your store of arms. 
That way, we know you got you, we got you under control. That's their experience, okay? What did they call that? They called it tyranny. We have a well-armed militia as a counterbalance to the potential for tyranny. Interestingly, who created the government that the Second Amendment is intended to constrain? Our founding fathers, the same guys that created the government. They understood human nature. They understood how tyrannical an overpowering government could be. So they wanted their citizens to be well armed. Good discussion points that I, I use is, it, did you see the movie Last Mohicans? Yeah. What, do, you, do you remember the soldiers, the militia being in the fort and not being able to go home because the British government told them that no, they don't get to go home? Is that right? Also, it just kind of creates the appearance of the militia. The better one is, um, you know, now also you see the contrast between the Continental Army, or the Colonial Army, the part of the British forces in that movie, um, and then the Patriot, um, the distinction between regular troops and the militia. You see that in, um, uh, particularly in the Patriot, where did Mel Gibson, hate to, you know, where did he get his weapon? He didn't go to the armory, he got it at his house. Okay? That was a very impactful aspect of the, of the Revolutionary War. Um, the Constitution allows, this is another argument, scary weapons I'll refer to. Your ARs, your, you know, the things that look like weapons of war. You hear that phrase a lot, okay? Uh, the Supreme Court has, allows those things, okay? They're allowed um, using phrases such as common use and, and, and whether or not they're unusual and dangerous, okay? It's a 223 platform that it could look like a, a, a BB gun if they wanted to make it look that way, and it would still be a 223, okay? Um, what I like to point out is our founding fathers, having seen the American Revolution, understood the importance of a rifled barrel versus a smoothbore. Smoothbore was the brown bass. That's where they marched and got in line, shot at each other until um, somebody ran off the battlefield. Okay? Um, the rifled barrels allowed them to hide behind a fence and shoot the officers in order to disorient the soldiers. The Kentucky Long Rifle, uh, Pennsylvania Long Rifle, these were weapons of great significance in our success of the war because they allowed our soldiers to, in some area ways, in unconventional ways, dominate and, and, and change the, 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 the battlefield. Okay. So, why is that relevant? In terms of small arms, what was the state-of-the-art weapon? They were all flintlocks, okay? They were either smoothbore or rifled barrel. Our founding fathers knew when they wrote the Second Amendment that 
rifled barrels were better. They were the state of the art of small arm technology. How is that relevant to our conversation right now? Those scary guns were contemplated by our founding fathers. You follow me? In other words, our founding fathers understood that a rifled barrel was the state of the art of the technology. No limitation on the individual's right to keep and bear arms. So if we're original intent is we want to find out what, what, what tools have our founding fathers given us to apply the Constitution to our current times. Well, if we understand their experience and their knowledge, okay, well, rifled barrels was a state of the art. Therefore, these scary weapons were considered. And that would be okay for the citizenry to have the weapons because sometimes governments are tyrannical. We hope it doesn't come to that, and actually the presence of those weapons is enough as a deterrent. Hunting. Oh, you don't need that AR for hunting. You're right. Well. <laughs> um, but hunting had nothing to do with the Second Amendment. It was all, and that's why it refers to, it refers to a militia. Okay? It doesn't say the right for, to Bubba, for Bubba to keep, the, the right for Bubba to go deer hunting shall not be infringed, therefore he can keep a deer rifle. Doesn't say that. No reference to hunting. Okay? Um, and I have lost my pages. There we go. Two, two biblical considerations. Um, Romans 13, 1 and 2 is, we've talked about it a couple of times, that speaks to who puts our governmental authority over us? God. Okay? You may hear that. If that's the case, then why do we need weapons? We should just trust God. Because God's put this government over us. Well, what's really interesting, our founding fathers didn't put men over us. It's our Constitution. The Constitution is our civil authority. So when you're reading Romans 13, 1 and 2, put the Constitution in there, not man. And it gives you a completely different perspective about the Second Amendment. Okay? The authority God put over us is our Constitution. It's a divine document. Therefore, I have a right to defend it. And Matthew 5, verses 38 and 39 speaks to if you get slapped, offer the other cheek. Well, culturally, there's some undertones here is because the, uh, the references, um, some of the, the strikes you on the right cheek, Okay, Who's if I get struck on the right cheek, which hand just hit me? If you're standing in front of me, your left hand. Okay, if I offer you, excuse me. Okay, rather than trying to figure this out again, the undertone here is sorry. The undertone here is 
The second strike is going to be somebody's backhand. Okay? It's going to be a backhand, which is more of an offense that you don't have a right. Give that to God. Okay? And the other part of that is, are you going to, most of us are not going to die because we're slapped. Okay? It's not a self-defense issue. And we've got to look at all of Scripture. You know, Jesus talks about the strong man being at home, being able to defend himself. We know that. But when we're personally assaulted or offended, we're not to take matters into our own hands. I think that's the distinction, if, it, if I'm making sense. And we are ready to go to the next section. And I don't know how to find it. If I close it. Okay. Close that one. Getting closer. There we are. Looky there. Slideshow. My kids would be so proud of me. I can do technology. Maybe. Well, I'm clicking on slideshow. Oh, from beginning. One more click. Okay. This is the second part. Government structure. What kind of government are we? Answers behind me. We are a constitutional republic. Okay. Our founding fathers really did some neat things. Okay. Um, what are separation of powers? Separation of powers involves um, each branch of government has its own function. Okay and its own territory that needs to be protected. What are checks and balances? That's the mechanisms that they use to keep tabs on one another and keep each other constrained. And what's interesting is even, you know, for instance, within the House and Senate, I'm going to give it in the context of what's going on right now with the uh, 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 approval process for the Supreme Court Justice. Um, The House doesn't have that responsibility. The House has the responsibility to take care of budgeting, okay? The House and Senate have to agree with each other to pass laws for the President to sign or, or um, veto, okay? So there's a check and balance even within that branch of the government. The Electoral College. Our founding fathers were very wise in that because they want each state to be able to have skin in the game and influence. The other thing that's about the House and the Senate, the Electoral College, remember, we don't have all 100 senators get elected at one time. Each election cycle, about a third of them get, get voted on, okay? Every two years, we have a complete uh, set of elections of the House. So you think of terms of frequency in terms of the emotions that we may occur in our nation. Our founding fathers understood that we could have tyranny if all of a sudden we're distracted by a shiny thing and our emotions are elevated, okay, we're all going to run over here on this issue, 
Okay. Well, who's going to be dragging behind? If it's a non-presidential election year, the president, but two-thirds of the Senate. So while the House is emotionally going like this, the Senate's like this, which tempers how we operate. Okay, And that's an important thing to understand when we start talking about the fact that we are a constitutional republic. We're not a direct democracy. And you see God's fingerprint on our nation with Exodus 18.21. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men, who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Doesn't that sound like representative government? <laughs> and that's what God has, uh, has for us. And that's what our Constitution has for us. So we're a constitutional republic. What's one of our other alternatives? What's going on in the streets of some of our cities? Anarchy. That's a government without laws, where the supreme power is the individual. These two verses, um, oops, let me see here. I lost my, there we go. Proverbs 30, 12. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Does that sound like anarchy? Woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Sounds like anarchy. So, and, and we're seeing that. You know, you go, you, know, you see the, the, the videos of people trying to eat a meal an outside cafe and they're being threatened because they're not doing this or they're not kneeling or doing some other crazy thing. Um, business is being burned. That's anarchy. With anarchy, is there anything to temper our emotions? No. That's why the re representative uh, constitutional republic that we have is so valuable. The next option is direct democracy. It's a government where the sovereign power lays directly with the people, a direct majority vote. Okay, that's a mob rule. Okay, that would be every year, two years, whatever, or even, you know, every issue for that matter. The mob gets to decide, which is craziness. And you, you see a contrast at Passion Week on how the mob rule works, okay? Matthew 11, 8 through 11 is the triumphal entry, okay? That's Jesus coming into uh, Jerusalem and being well-received. Matthew 27, verse 21, what do we hear? We want a free Barabbas, not Jesus. We want Jesus crucified. In a week, less than a week, that's mob rule, that's direct democracy.
let's talk a little bit about economic considerations. Um, socialism. Have you ever been told that because you're a Christian, you should be in favor of socialism? You should be willing to share all your stuff, okay? You should be happy that the government wants to take your stuff to give it to somebody else, okay? Socialism is good. Why don't we? Okay, well, the problem is, again, are we perfect creatures? No. And usually the people that get to decide where your stuff goes are imperfect creatures. And the rules don't apply to them the same way. And we probably, I could go through some examples that we've seen since the beginning of the year on masks, no masks, flying, not flying, burning carbon, not burning carbon. We, we see those imperfections in, our, in man. These, and, and socialism just tends to accentuate it because there are going to always be a few people that rise to the top. They get to make the decisions. Um, Acts, 20, uh, Acts 2, 44 through 45 and Acts 32, 35, dealing with private ownership and sharing. Those verses that you're familiar with, when the early church came together, a couple dynamics. One is, my understanding is, the early church, when they came together and supported one another, they were also supporting a lot of people who had not gone back home after the Passover. Okay? Um, but there was nobody taking their stuff. It was their own faith decision. We didn't have a government coming in and taking their stuff. It was their choice as a matter of faith to support the early church. And they were supporting the early church. I think we're allowed to look at the historical context and differentiate it from today. And when you look at Acts, I believe, 4, 32 through 35, you're going to see phraseology along the lines of, and they sold their stuff, I'm being simplistic, but they sold their stuff as the need arose. Okay, well, what do you learn from that? Whose stuff was being sold? Theirs. Mine, not ours, okay? Socialism, it's ours from the beginning, okay? So they had the freedom to make that choice to sell their stuff. So you, you see a lot of people, I'll, I'll make political references, political spectrum. Those on the left, okay, favor of big government, a lot of government controls, government solving all the problems. Those on the extreme right, the very extreme right would be your anarchists, okay, the way the spectrum works, okay. In actuality, when you kind of look at that spectrum, the Nazis, because they were engineering their culture, are over here on the left more than they are. They're not on the right. Right always gets tagged with that, but it was really over here because your libertarians and, and others are on the, on the right, tend to be on the right. So you know, the, the folks over here like to use, misuse scripture 
to argue that we should all be socialists because Jesus was a socialist. That's not true. Jesus didn't teach socialism. Well, what about Ananias and Sapphira? They didn't give all their stuff. They were supposed to. They should have. Well, that's not why, that's not the, the issue. The issue was, as they were told, you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself. You said you sold it and that you gave us all the money, but you kept some of it aside. Okay? As if you were, you, you lied. You didn't, and if they had, you know, my inference from the story, it doesn't say this literally, but my inference from the story is if they said, you know what, we sold our stuff, we got $100, here's $50. They would have walked away because they were honest with the Holy Spirit. You have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself, and that's why you are dead. Um, in the interest of time, I'm not going to... Parable of the workers in the vineyard. If you're familiar with that, throughout the, as Jesus is talking about the story, throughout the day, people showed up, and it was the same wage. So the person that started at 9 o'clock got the same wage as the person that started at 3 or 4 o'clock. Is that fair? Yeah. When I showed up at 9 o'clock, I agreed to that wage. The owner of the field can choose to overpay, if you will, the person that showed up at 3 o'clock. Okay? That's a twisted parable in the economic realm in the way our mind... Why would Jesus use it? He, you know, he, could have, he could have defined grace in a different way. He used this one. Again, look at the quarter. Is it a head or a tail? Or excuse me, is it a quarter? Yes, but I see a tail, you see a head. That's how, again, Scripture, we can use it. It, it. it is manifold. It has multiple layers, multiple ways to understand it. Don't make the quarter a nickel. And I think this is one of those examples. You look at how Jesus used this story to teach, and I think there's an economics lesson for us, and that is the free market. The owner of the field chose to pay them the way that he chose to pay them. The worker agreed to whatever the wage was. That's free market. What about profit? Profit's awful. We shouldn't be able to make a profit. Excessive profits, you hear that? Gross profits. What does the parable of the talents tell us about profit? Hmm? It's, you know, you're rewarded. And uh, plain and simple. If you worked well and you took your five talents and turned them into ten, you get rewarded. If you turn your three talents into six, you get rewarded. If you bury them in your backyard, you don't get rewarded. That's free market. What about progressive taxation? Progressive taxation, your tax rate increases based upon your success. What happens to my desire to try? At some point, I want to spend my time out in the woods instead of trying to make some money because I'm just going to have to give that much more of it away. It's going to be taken from me. Flat tax, everybody pays the same rate. Okay, so everybody pays X percent no matter how much you make. So you're not punished. You're not punished for doing better. You still pay the same percentage, flat tax. 
Paul, that was the taxation, the way God set up the taxation for Israel. Exactly. And that is Deuteronomy. Exactly, Greg. And what Greg has shared is that's how God set up the tax in Israel. The simplistic view is, is, is the tithe, 10%. And tithes and offerings. Offerings, God wants us to do both. For Israel, it was actually 26%. Right. The aggregate was 26%, Greg just shared. Helping the poor. This is a soft spot for Christians in terms of why socialism is good. And, and um, I, think the, I think the Christian community could be better speaking in terms of this area and doing more, okay? Now first, can we ever eliminate poverty? I meant to look before I came up the statistic on how many trillions of dollars our government has spent on the war on poverty, and we are exactly the same place. Right, now how we define poverty has connotations to it, okay? Um, I don't have the same big TV that the other guy does. I don't have the, shi the same shiny car the other guy does. Well, let's compare my poverty to the poverty of somebody in Central Africa. Whole different picture. And we don't look at it that way in terms of our culture. But in, in, uh, you see in Numbers 1323 and 1327 reference to the promised land as being a land that flows with milk and honey. The grapes are huge and have to be carried on a, on a large stake. Okay? However, Deuteronomy 14 and 11, in spite of knowing that we have the promised land, this abundant land, do we need to be told about the poor? We should be able to take care of everybody. We don't have poor here because we're in the promised land. The poor will never cease to be in the land. You shall freely open your land to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. That's God talking. Okay. Now, earlier he does say you will not have poor if you follow my ways, okay? but do we do that? So the practical reality is Deuteronomy 14.11. Okay? Um, and then what did Jesus say? When the, uh, the um, alabaster jar was broken and, and his feet were anointed, and I think it was Lazarus, or it's not Lazarus, Judas, you know, wait, we could give this to the poor. Um, what was his statement? You will always have the poor. Now, Kim every now and then corrects me whenever, because there's an insensitivity to that statement. Okay, we've got to understand that. We still have a responsibility to the poor. Okay, just because they're always going to be there doesn't mean we don't do anything for them. Be generous out of obedience and faith. Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 11, um, for interest of time, read that verse. And it tells us what we as a Christian community should be doing. We should be open-handed, okay, not tight-fisted. This is the best way to describe that, those verses. Open-handed, not tight-fisted. Not begrudge that we're giving. Be joyous givers. How to help the poor. There's some interesting observations to be made from these verses. The Sabbath year... Familiar with that in, in Exodus 23:11, this is God's instruction. During the Sabbath year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So what would happen is, 
You leave the land fallow, but because of what was left behind when you did your last harvest, that land is still going to produce something, and you leave it to the poor, yep. and they get to do they they have that. Deuteronomy twenty four nineteen through twenty one talks about once you harvest a field, don't go back and do it again. Don't harvest from the corners. Leave that. You know, you see in the in the book of Ruth the actual manifestation of, 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 of that process, okay? So, and the reason is then the poor can take what's left behind, harvest the corners, okay? But they, even in God's system for caring for the poor, they had to go on the, onto the field and get their food. Greg, come on. Oh, did I know? <laughs> it's okay. No, what Greg said is, is even with this system, they had to go out into the field. Okay, and and that was going to be the slide after this one. So they do, <laughs> they do have you know, and that's, um, you know, when you reap your harvest on your land, do not reap the very edges of your field. This is Leviticus nineteen nine and ten. Don't go over your vineyard a second time. And the next one is. What is happening in these verses? And as Greg pointed out, you are leaving it, and whoever is poor that wants to benefit from those behaviors has to go out and pick it up. Okay? There's work involved. Dignity. There's dignity, as Greg just said, and that's true. Work is a blessing. Um, Da, 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 da. Uh, oh, I can't remember the verse now. It'll come to me. Work is a blessing. Yes. Um, everyone who is able works. This is uh, Thessalonians 3.10. Uh, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Okay, I, this, is, this really struck me. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. In the past five or six months, have you seen anybody on TV or on the Internet engaged in activities that would be well served to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Put down the brick, stop starting fires, go home and improve your life yourself and work. It's a blessing. This is a bonus verse on that one. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. Okay? Um, that's that. Right. Taking care of the, pair is a per, a fair, the, excuse me, the poor is a personal faith issue and involves a constructive empowerment of the poor while meeting their needs. And that's this leaving it behind. They have to bend over and pick it up. They have to work. And there's dignity in that. Okay? Um, what I'd like to do... Um, on, 
on the ballot are some constitutional amendments. And I'd like to take a minute or two, let you know what they are. Um, some of these, and I'm going to actually, we'll do a little test because a couple of these I think may um, speak to some of the things that we've talked about. Amendment number one is a citizens only voting measure, okay? That um, for our state constitution, language is going to be added that requires that in order to vote in Florida, you have to be a United States citizen. You're going to read a little bit that says this is really isn't necessary. In federal elections, you have to be a citizen, and that's under our U.S. Constitution. The states have the ability, units of local government in their own elections have the ability to do that differently. And you'll see that in some other states. I think California does it. You could see it down in South Florida, okay, where a local community decides, you know what, we want immigrants that are not citizens to be able to vote. This constitutional amendment will specify that in any election in our state, you have to be a citizen, okay? Um, and that would um, eliminate the ability for any unit of local government um, to do otherwise. The second uh, proposed amendment has to do with, so anyway, Amendment 1 would prohibit non-citizens from voting, okay? So if you want only citizens to vote, you're going to vote yes on that one. If you want citizens to vote, you'll vote no. Non-citizens, non excuse me. If you want non-citizens, thanks for listening, Kim. Um, uh, if you want non-citizens to be able to vote, okay, you'll vote no on that. <laughs> Amendment two is raising the minimum wage. So what happens is over the next five years, every year it will, our minimum wage is going to go up by a dollar, starting at $10. So in five years, our minimum wage would be $15. Anything that we just went over tonight that would suggest an answer to that one? Is that a free market idea or is it a, is it a not free market idea? Not. It's not a free market idea. Traditionally, to me, is that something that should even be considered a, for a constitution? Well, and, and actually, let's talk about the constitutional process, which actually is number four. But let me, let me tell you what. Kim asked the question on the minimum wage, should that even be in our state constitution? We'll talk about that when we look at Amendment 4, um, because I want to talk about this constitutional amendment process a little bit um, in the context of some of the things that we've gone over. Kim just went, Kim just went 10 minutes. We'll be done in 10 minutes, easy. Um, number three is affectionately referred to as the jungle primary and it comes from California. Red flags go off for anybody? It's from California? Yeah. What this amendment does is at the primary, in, in the state of Florida, you have primary elections. And primary elections, each party gets to decide who is going to represent them in the general election. Okay? So, I'm part of party A, 
and I want this person to be my champion because I agree with that person more than the others that are in the race, I want them to go up. The other party does the same. So now we have two people that potentially best represent the ideas of that party going up against each other. So now we have a much clearer challenging of ideas. What the jungle primary does is everybody's put in the same pot. Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Communists, Socialists, whatever party that shows up in our state of Florida that's on the ballot, they all run against each other. The top two vote getters go to the top. Okay? And those two top voters, vote getters, run against each other. So it could be two Republicans, two Communists, two Democrats, whoever. Okay? Well, what's likely going to happen during this process? Everybody in that primary vote wants to get as many of the general public to vote for them. So we're going to want to be liked, so our ideas are going to do what? Come together, if you will. We're not going to have two opposing points of view, more than likely. And more than likely, the way that our culture operates, those candidates fighting for the vote are going to do what? probably move to the left more and more, more than likely. Interesting thing about this amendment is both the Democrat and the Republican Party oppose it, okay? Um, the voter approval, amendment number four, deals with the voter approval of the Constitution, okay? Um, ordinarily, our laws are passed where? In the legislature, approved by the governor. We have in our Constitution the ability for the people to vote on whether or not to add things to our Constitution. Well, sometimes what happens is a group of people who have a special interest of some sort want their thing to become law. So what do they do? They go to the legislature. Legislature says, no, committees never do it. So we're getting frustrated over here. So what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to fashion language that's going to tickle the ears of the public and get it on the Constitution. We had an amendment years ago protecting pregnant pigs. Before that, even before that, before the state was even ready, we had, and I don't think we're states ready on this, is a different topic, but we had a constitutional amendment requiring the state to do high-speed rail. We weren't ready to do it, and we didn't have the support for it. But a special interest got it on the ballot, and you write the language in such a way that, gosh, how could I say no to this, you know? Um, so the process is, has to get two-thirds of the vote in order to pass the Constitution. Well, generally speaking, it's, you, you write the language in a flowering way. Somebody who's uninformed shows up, of course I'm in favor of pregnant pigs. I don't want anybody to hurt pregnant pigs, so yeah, okay? That's how it happens. So what this amendment is doing is you've got to go through the election cycle twice. In other words, I, put to, I go through the process, I collect the signatures, I get my item on the ballot, if it gets approved, I've got to, two years later, I've got to do it again, okay? Well, some might say the advantage of that is if it passes the first time, maybe the legislature can take it a little more seriously and do something with it, okay? The legislative process, typically you have committee hearings, you have science involved, you have data, you pass legislation that's been a little more considered. Now. The, what I've described to you in terms of this constitutional amendment process where everybody in the state gets to vote, 
67% of us, or 60%, say yes. What does that sound like? Mob rule. Direct democracy. Okay? Sounds noble, but direct democracy is what we saw in the streets of Jerusalem during Passion Week. Okay? There's a biblical context to look at these constitutional amendments and why we have representative democracy. I mean, constitutional republic. We have a state constitution. So I think there's a biblical basis to seriously question this constitutional amendment process. Back to Kim's question. Should the minimum wage be in our constitution? Well, what if, the constitu what if our economy bottoms out? We, we go through a real Great Depression and our economy can only support wage rates of $2.50. Well, I've got to pay you $10. I mean, I'm not going to open a business. The legislature has the better, is better equipped to deal with these things. So our Constitution amendment process, as we're seeing it, is direct democracy. Is direct democracy biblical? I would submit it isn't. So number five is currently if you move, you have two years to buy another house, there's a provision in the law that your homestead exemption is protected, okay? And how your uh, uh, um, uh, property taxes are calculated, okay, are buffered. And you have two years to buy. Uh, it used to be that if I sold today, moved to someplace else, I start over again get reassessed. Okay, so we've got a two-year buffer so that I can buy someplace else. And, and Well, what this does is extends it a third year. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going to take, I'm not an elder of the church, I'm not a pastor, so I'm not speaking on behalf of the church with my next answer. Okay, um, I'm voting in favor of that. That's my personal point of view. Uh, I think the government gets plenty of money. Any place that we can curb that, I'm in favor of it. Um, and then Amendment 6, is the as uh, provides for ad valorem discounts for spouses of deceased combat veterans. Now it's pretty easy to me again because it, it it scratches the less money for the government itch, and we're taking care of uh, uh, spouses of deceased combat veterans. So, um, any questions? Go ahead. Oh yeah. I want to ask What I would do? Okay, this is what Paul would do, not what the church would do. Uh, I'm not in leadership here, um, so I'm going to take that hat off for absolutely for sure, disavow the church uh, uh, for the purpose of, of answering these questions. What I'm doing, I'm voting yes on one, I'm voting no on two, I'm voting no on three, I'm voting yes on four, I'm voting yes on five, and I'm voting yes on six. Well, what do, number four does is it creates another barrier. Okay, it tempers, it slows down the constitutional amendment process because I've got to I've got to get it approved once, and then I've got to get it approved the second time, two years later. And what that does is, one, it makes it much more difficult, quite frankly, and more expensive. So it's going to be deterrent. Additionally, it gives the legislature a period of time to 
meaningfully look at whatever the issue is and perhaps pass laws that need to be passed that are not going to be some wacky special interest constitutional amendment. Sure. Who's that man God gave you? <laughs> Amendment one, I'm voting yes. Amendment two, I'm voting no. Amendment three, I'm voting no. Amendment four, I'm voting yes. Amendment five, I'm voting yes. Amendment six, I'm voting yes. And you all are free to sh you know, share that with anybody. Anybody wants to give me a call, whatever, and I'll go over them with them if they want to, because these are kind of obscure things. 